everyone, welcome back to the Book and Life podcast. Today we're going to have a brand new book guest on. Whether they're an author, an editor, a producer, you'll never quite know, so you're in for one hell of a ride. But today I just have to uh, do the adverts and then I'll get us straight into that most important conversation. And as as we do every week, um, I'm going to read The Shadow which is part of the Time Guardian series, and this is book four from Marianne Curley. The battle is over, the war is won. The prophecy complete, but life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan, struggling to cope with tragic loss. At odds with friends in the guard, he finds himself adrift, jumping in shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there. Blaming herself for the goddess Athena's death, Giselle swears revenge to fullify the immortal's plan for world domination, but Giselle hadn't planned on love, and that leaves her with an unbearable choice. Should she follow her heart, or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation, who continues to pull her from the grave? As the guard and the order battles through the past and into an impossible future, darkness looks round every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe who stands in the shadow? And just a reminder that The Price of Freedom by Rosemary Aiken, sorry, Rosemary Rowan, um, is being donated to the Ukraine refugee crisis. And here's the blurb for her book. It's uh, one of her... Roman British crime series, which was written under her maiden name. All editions can be found online where all books are sold, even her agents donating her commission. Sorry, I don't have the blurb for that, but uh, that's that's what she's doing. And now, without further ado, let's get you to the guests. So, uh, you guys, I told you this was going to be one towards checking out. I promised you all a great historical writer. She could ne- could be the next Jean Plume, or she could be even better. She could be a Nancy Rebel. You're going to have to listen to find out a little bit more, and I promise you it is more than worth it. So, without further ado, let's introduce Christine Wells. Hi, Crystal. Pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome to the Book of Life podcast, where we are silly and have fun, and it's just, yeah, interesting. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about One Woman's War and your other book? Yeah, of course. One Woman's War is my most recent release, and it's got a little subtitle called A Novel of the Real Miss Moneypenny. So as you can probably work out, it's set during World War II. And it's about the real woman who was secretary to James Bond creator Ian Fleming during World War II when they worked at British Naval Intelligence. So uh, a lot of you probably know, but um, uh, Ian Fleming was the right-hand man to the director of Naval Intelligence, uh, Rear Admiral John Godfrey, and he, his Ian Fleming's job was to really coordinate uh, massive intelligence operations 
to come up with ideas for them, to resource them, to get approvals. So he was running between agencies and doing all of that. Patty Bennett, uh, I came across her quite by accident. I've always been interested in spies. <laughs> my father took my brother and me to the, our first James Bond movie when I was seven. <laughs> it's a bit of a funny story because uh, we had been going, he, he'd been working in Sydney, we live in Brisbane, which is a, a, a plane flight away, just a short plane flight away, uh, and we, my mother took my brother and me down to visit him while he was working, and then we had a family holiday together. So mum had us for about a week uh, on her own, and once dad was finished work, she said, okay, they're yours, <laughs> I'm going shopping, and... Yep. Uh, and so instead of taking us to a museum or something educational that she expected him to do, he took us to see For Your Eyes Only. And, uh, yes, I was quite young, but I, I was enthralled. So I've been a bit of a James Bond fan ever since. And uh, I was reading biographies of about Ian Fleming and, and reading about the women in his life who, who were... Uh, in the main, very intelligent and witty women. I mean, he married Anne Fleming eventually, and I came, came across Patty Bennett and found out that not only had she been a secretary to him during the war, but she also uh, was involved in Operation Mincemeat. So a lot of people know about Operation Mincemeat now because of the recent movie. And I thought, and she was such a redoubtable character, you know, she said, she was half Irish and half Yorkshire, so the battle was terrific. And uh, she, she's just a, quite a redoubtable woman. She was very young at the time, so I decided to write One Woman's War about her. Uh, and the other book we were going to talk about is Sisters of the Resistance, which is my previous novel. And that's about Catherine Dior, who was the uh, sister of the famous fashion designer and she draws two young women into the resistance movement during World War II in Paris. So it's from, told from the young women's point of view, mainly because uh, there's not an awful lot of detail existing about what Catherine did. And I wanted to write about her because I felt she really needed to be known better how brave she was and you know what what she contributed but uh, the scant detail meant that I didn't feel like I could make her a, a protagonist I, I sort of she's in it and she draws these women into the movement and it's front told from their point of view so Yvette it becomes a model for Christian Dior and Gabby their two sisters Gabby is the concierge in the apartment building where Christian Dior lives and where Catherine comes to stay when she visits Paris. She acted sometimes as a courier uh, from the intelligence gathering unit in the south of France. She'd bring things with her to Paris to then uh, smuggle out to the British. So she was, apparently there were comings and goings at night uh, from, to and from Christian Dior's Paris apartment and that's where Gabby, my, my principal character, gets involved.
Sounds amazing. And it's it's funny you say that because my partner's name is Ian Fleming. And he was named after the writer of James Bond. Really? So, yeah, I was holding that in my back pocket. So, like, I was waiting for us to come on. And I was like, I'm going to tell her and see, see what she thinks. Um, so, yeah, every time he introduces himself, you know, everyone sort of kind of does that. And, and, and he's like, yes, it's spelled the same way, you know. And he just says that kind of, oh, really? Yes, it is a, it's a, it's a mantle of a name to carry, isn't it? He carries it very well, actually. Um, yeah. He has a good laugh with it. And to be honest, he's got an inver- an incredible mind. Uh, and he's, for somebody who's as witty as him, you just don't expect a lot of the stories that you do get from him because he's such oh, a good really? storyteller. Um, whereas I'm, I'm the one that puts it on paper. He's the one that usually just comes up with them on the fly. And, uh, yeah, leaves, leaves, leaves a lot um, of hot moments. Um, so, yeah. but it's And it's lovely to hear more of the British missions kind of coming out as well, because I grew up in a place where a lot of secret missions happened. And, you know, we got taught it at school, but when you kind of came down to the mainland, people didn't know about these um, secret missions. So I think it's great that you're sort of bringing attention to them and you're you're telling them in a fresher way you're telling them in a way that people can connect to nowadays and not just think of it as oh another dusty book that can sit on the shelf you know because it looks pretty i think that's a really good thing and i think we need especially now with everything that's going on with ukraine and uh, i think we kind of need to remind people that it wasn't as long ago as we would like to think that we were all in that position and that we just need to be a bit more aware of what's happening so that we don't end up back there. Yes, absolutely. And and I always marvel at the bravery of everyday people. So, um, uh, you know, you see those stories coming out of Ukraine and just marvelling at the bravery that you see. It's just, I mean, it's horrible that it has to be the way, but uh, you do, I'm sure in years to come, there'll be stories told about this era as well. And I think that there's a lot of hero stories. I mean, there's some that we've obviously already heard about, but I think, you know, the prime minister set the perfect example by not leaving Mm, and saying, I am going to stay and I'm going to fight with my people. And I admired his wife who, you know, it has to be terrifying for her, knowing what the Russians would do if they got their hands on her. And yet she stayed, and she still yeah. stays, and she walks with him, and she she's proud of the fact that she's saying, I'm going to take a stand, I'm not going to let this just happen. And uh, yeah. I admire her for that, because there's a lot of leaders that as soon as the country's you know, in trouble, they flee, and that you know that's the end. Um, and I think if we, we look at what's happened in Iraq over the last two years, you know, that, that's kind of a perfect example of a leader who flees um, mm. in the face of, of trouble, or, or at least our most recent uh, sort of example that we have of that. So I love the idea that you've also taken a female perspective, because that's something that s- there's 
very few writers that do focus particularly on the women's side of history. I think people are so used to listening to the stories of the men that it's almost kind of nice when you do get a female perspective. And I grew up on Catherine Cookson where it was a bit of a mixed bag. Because you just didn't know with her what you were getting until you sort of like 50 pages in and then you're like, uh, okay, I have no idea what this story's about, but I'm going to keep going anyway, you know? Um, yeah. She yeah, does have I the addictive quality of her. Um, well, well, the fiction is... is a good avenue to explore women's stories because there's so little detail. I mean, with Patty, she's not even mentioned in a book about Room 39 where she worked. Uh, she's not mentioned in a lot of the books about Operation Mincemeat. So uh, just, you know, I had to piece together what she had actually done and there's a bit of contention about who wrote these letters and you know all of this sort of detail it, w so. it wouldn't surprise me if women actually had a bigger role behind the scenes during world war ii than people realize well i think, I think so yeah absolutely and i i think um, it, i know from from the shetland side of things that the shetland women were really instrumental in keeping that community going and alive because their men were taking whatever boat they had and were going over to Norway and going to Finland and Denmark and they were rescuing whoever they could while also dropping spies there. And, uh, you know, women are women in essentially are forgotten about in regards to that mission because they were the ones that were taking rowing boats out into the North Sea to, fi to fish, to feed the, feed the families that were left behind. You know, if, if a woman was widowed, for instance, the, the female community would just rally round her. Um, and there was so many that were widowed so quickly. Um, and the men didn't just go out to do those particular missions. They used to go out on scouting missions to actually retrieve people from the ocean that had, you know, the Germans were great for sinking boats and then leaving the crew to drown. And, you know, the Shetlanders would risk their lives going out at night to see if they could to, could rescue ones. Because they did, they had this great belief about the ocean and about just following, you know, their heart and going with that flow. And the, the laws of the ocean, I think, bounds all fishermen and all people of the sea. And and that was, that's what they held on to in such a time of uncertainty and crisis, and the women held on to it because they had to. They had to hold on to it for their men's sake, and I think that's. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. Yes, and it, when you think of it as a world war, these sort of stories are everywhere. Um, yeah. And you know, recently I discovered about the Danish resistance which I yeah. had never come across before uh, there are so many stories to tell <laughs> I think uh, you could spend a lifetime yeah and it I mean I only recently I watched um, I can't remember what it was called now, but they did a show in America about the royal family of, of Norway and how they got oh, ships Atlantic to see, crossing yeah the Atlantic mm. crossing and to me, that was important because 
people always, you know, they are, everyone knows the British royal family. I mean, you know, you yeah. can't really ask a single person who doesn't. But there is other royal families. And there's other royal lines. They're just a lot quieter about their existence than the British are. And to me, it was important because I, you know, Shetland was originally Norwegian slash Danish. Yeah. And, you know, to us, we still have that connection to them that's really strong. So it was good to see. It felt like a little bit of our history because I knew the men that had come from Shetland to help them escape, to make sure that boat got out and that they got to the States, you know. Um, and they did, they risked their, I mean, so many of the men risked their lives that day for that, just that one reason. Mm. And uh, the royal family originally actually wanted to go to the Shetlands because they thought it would be safe because they thought, well, nobody knows where this place is yeah. on a map. <laughs> so, you know, how are they going to know where we are? And I, I thought, <laughs> well, that's brave for one. Um, because Shetland, you know, didn't have the same amenities as everybody else at that point. They were a little behind and it was kind of a bit of a forgotten community. But I just thought, wow, you know, they, they, the first place they thought of was our islands, our, our sort of little islands. And, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was very amazing. Um, and Shetland was one of the more unscathed islands in the world war because, you know, they got bombed once and they only managed to kill a rabbit. <laughs> you know, they, they came and they dropped this muckle great big bomb in a field. I don't know what they were thinking they were going to hit. Uh, and all they the got story. was a rabbit. They, they, they find the rabbit, that's how they know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we had, we had a German boat go down in the, the Lerwick Harbour. And uh, they rescued the, the German, and he was so grateful to be given a warm... They gave him a house, an empty house they had. And they did it up for him, and he he lived in relative comfort. The islanders didn't trust him. They kept very close watch on him. But he had relative freedom because he wasn't kept in a camp. He wasn't kept in chains or, or anything like that. He was he was allowed to live among them. But they all reminded him, I think, probably periodically if I know Shetlanders, mm -hmm. that they knew what he was and what he'd done and that he had to live within a set rules. Um, and it's funny because there's descendants of that that, that playing guy, um, the fighter pilot, who lives in Shetland now, relatives, distant relatives of him, who uh, who went and lived on the islands because they they loved, they, they went there to visit and they fell in love with the place and they saw where he stayed and how well he'd been taken care of. And, and I think that was an amazing experience for them that they decided to call Shetland home. Well, he was very lucky because I think there was a bit of vigilante uh, behaviors <laughs> elsewhere when they found downed pilots mm. yeah there was and you know i i always laugh because uh my grandfather told me about this australian pilot that had come up 
to Shetland to run this um, particular Saturn mission. And he was so cold. Bless him, he couldn't get warm. And he had like three of these woolly jumpers on. <laughs> and he looked a bit like, you know, muscle man. He just couldn't move because he, he had to wear so many layers so he wouldn't get colder. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, and he, he, as soon as he could get inside for a hot cup of tea and a drink and sit by the fire, he was there, you know. <laughs> um, so it, it always amused my grandfather when he met uh, people from other countries um, because either they did really well in the Shetlands and they thought it was beautiful or they were a bit like him and sort of could never get warm again. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he was glad to get back to your weather. He must have been <laughs> like, hallelujah. <laughs> well, there are downsides to our weather too. <laughs> it gets very hot here. But, uh, yeah. Well, you, you guys are in the middle of your summer, aren't you? Uh, we are supposedly going towards summer, but uh, it's been quite cold here for us. So, um, oh, okay. I, I haven't been in the swimming pool yet. That might give you an, an idea. It just hasn't been uh, warm enough to swim. So we had a real cold snap that came through and it was snowing down south. And so, uh, But just this week, it's we're into the 30 degrees Celsius sort of day. Um, That's so good. we'll be able to yeah. swim soon. <laughs> Well, here, honestly, it's like monsoon rain we've got, so, oh, um, yeah, normally Scotland's pretty good with the rain, because we get it all the time, it's yes. like, all the time, um, but this kind of rain has just been, <laughs> it's just been non-stop for the last sort of week, um, and, you know, there's parts that's flooding and stuff, and, um, most Scottish people won't build on a fog plane, so we're pretty good for things like that. But mm -hmm. yeah, you're just driving through tons of water, and there's water all over the roads, and yeah, it's it's been weird. It's it's probably the wettest I've seen November for for us for a very very long time. Yeah, we had a very wet the past year. It was very wet. We had flooding, uh, and unfortunately. Australians are not so good about not building on floodplains, so there are there are houses by the river that just get inundated quite regularly now when, you know, we used to say, oh, we only get flooded once in a hundred years, and then it's been twice or three times in the last ten years. So, yeah, uh, yeah the people, I can't believe people just you know, they claim on insurance, renovate, and still stay where they are, and then they yeah, get yeah, and that that never made sense to me either, because you know, in England, they're not great for not building on floodplains either, and I just think, yes, it's yeah, beautiful, beautiful spot, but could you not have built it on a hill? <laughs> like, I mean, it's not like England doesn't have hills because they have a lot of hills. Oh, but, yeah. you know, you're just like, could you not have just gone, like, you know, 50 yards up a little bit higher, you know? Yeah, um, we seem to have a lot of developers who just buy this cheap land, and it's cheap because it's a floodplain, yep. and then they sell the houses sell high. to them yeah. who, who aren't aware and don't do the searches uh, that they need to do, and then they get inundated. But, 
the old, uh, I live in Queensland and there's a, a style of house that's a Queenslander. So traditionally they were built on stumps and so oh, the water okay. would just rush through underneath and you'd be fine. But now people raise them and build in underneath and so it's become Defeats more of the a purpose, problem. yeah. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I see that in Florida where they, they will build on these gigantic stilts almost. And then I think, oh, I wouldn't want to be up that high with the winds they get, you know? Like, I just think, oh. So it's kind of for them, I feel it's worse because it, it's either hurricane season or it's like tropical storm season. Yes. And I think, I would like to be there. Because, yeah, we... We were flying to LA in 2016. Our flights were on schedule, but the lassie who had flown from Glasgow with us to Philly, she was almost in tears because all her flights were delayed because there was a tropical storm had hit, yeah. and she had no idea how she was getting to Florida. No. And I thought, oh, and I thought, you know, because we had the the wildfires when we were out. And I thought that was scary enough, but I couldn't imagine sort of being stuck and thinking, okay, I can't get to the state I need to get to. You know, it's, it must it must be crazy. It must be uncomfortable at times. <laughs> Domestic travel in the United States is not a joke. <laughs> I'll try, no. try to limit that if I can. If I'm over there, I'll try to go straight to the place I want to be in. But, um... yeah. I, I flew over the Rockies once. <laughs> and I just thought mm, I don't fancy doing that again <laughs> because we were I think we were halfway to LA my husband was trying to sleep and then we had like six pockets of air oh. back to back so it was like pop pop poof pop pop poof I was like okay this is not good especially because like, you know you're on a coming over the top of the mountains and you're thinking yeah. Please don't hit the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like, because the Shetlander and me, even though I know I'm on a big plane, I still think I'm on a propeller plane. You know, one of those tiny little things. So mm -hmm. I still almost imagine this little plane trying to like skimmy through the the air to get to where it's going. And obviously that's not the case. But uh Yeah. I, I've survived quite a lot of bumpy landings, uh, any Shetlander has, because our, mm. our uh, airport is actually built in the ocean. Right. Oh. So there's 50 metres out one way and 50 metres out the other way, so if the pilot is, cuts it too fine, he's in the water one end, <laughs> and if he breaks too soon, he's in the water at the other end. <laughs> and if he's really unlucky, he can get blown sideways off, because oh, there's nothing to stop so yeah and then because Shetland has no trees so when the wind really rolls through it rolls through mm. and you think gee am I about to lose the house <laughs> kind of idea so yeah because um, we, we've been up fairly recently and they had 110 mile an hour winds mm -hmm. and I thought yeah we're going to lose something tonight and it, it's weird because um all this sort of garden furniture was sort of rolling down the hill. And then there was this thing on Facebook going, right, I'm the owner of such and such, and this is the owner of such and such, and this is the owner of 
Yes, yes. We so, have that on the river where everything, all the pontoons come loose during yep. the floods and and boats and and we had a restaurant that was sort of pontoon and oh, cool. and it sort of broke free and floated down the river. And yes, I think that they, must have been hard to recover, though. Oh, I think they yeah it, it was just so badly damaged they had to rebuild but i think after the second time it happened there is no um restaurant there anymore <laughs> i don't i don't blame it um you know i think i think if you have lived by the ocean everyone has that natural instant re you know respect for it because you're kind of mm. like yeah i know what it can do i'm just gonna stay safely over here yeah. You know, it's that self-preservation part you kicks it. So that's right. What, and what? and if you live in a place, you you're used to whatever natural disasters yeah. there are. Yeah. And and nowadays the natural disasters are so much more often that mm. it's harder for us to ignore. It's harder for us to kind of go, oh, okay, you know, this doesn't happen very often when actually in reality it does. And we're, right. we're all yeah. just sort of coming to terms with it now, I think. Um, mm. So when you came to write your books, was there like a, a sort of thing that said, I have to write in this genre or I have to write this topic? What was the inspiration that really got you going? I think that it's, I, I just felt really comfortable in the historical fiction genre and yeah. It's what I read a lot of, the, and uh, although I do read mystery and, and psychological thrillers too, so that's a separate issue, but uh, <laughs> I, I think my voice is fairly well suited to historical fiction, although I would say I probably write a little more uh, compactly, or I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm not the sort of writer who will write pages of description you, yep. you know, some writers do beautiful, beautiful description of the place and all of that. I'm more of a um, get up and go and let's tell the story sort of thing. And then I, I do a lot of research, but I weave it in so that it's not... so that Like it's being dumped on you. Yes, um, and hopefully the reader feels like they're there. But, but I'm not... Yeah instructing you or lecturing you or anything like that it's just it's all about the story and what i can weave in from the historical research and you focus on the pace of it i think that's what kind of comes through in your writing is that there's a you can tell just just from even if you go on to amazon and you take a sample you can normally tell from that what the pace of somebody's writing would be like Yes. And you can kind of fall in love with it from there. And if it's a really good book, you will go and buy it. And so sometimes if I have somebody on and I've not read them before, I might go and I'll, I'll take a nosy sample. And I can tell from that, you know, if somebody's a describer or if they're a pacer or if they have, you know, what skills that they like to apply. And then that helps me when I do do this because gives me an idea of whether people want to tell lots of stories or whether they're more focused on sort of the pace of what the podcast will sound like um and it's also my job to get everybody out their heads so i kind of come up with sort of really random stories from my own experiences um 
and then I always have a five minute chat too so just everyone kind of gets that nice relaxed space in a, in a way um, so yeah I, I noticed that about yours yours is a very pace driven novel and I think that's really well done um, and I look forward to reviewing your work in more detail in the future Oh, thanks very much, Crystal. I, I think perhaps it's a fairly fast-paced for historical fiction, yeah. but uh, in some areas the One Woman's War has been touted as a spy thriller, and it's not a spy thriller. It's really historical fiction, so there is there are spies in it, uh, but if you're looking for a twisty, turny spy thriller, that is not that book. It's, it's firmly in the historical fiction camp and it's about spies but it's not uh, yeah I, I think the characters who are in it maybe confuses the reader in some regards because they'll be they've kind of got a preset idea in their head almost of what it mm. would be and that's maybe where a lot of them are, are thinking oh no 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 it's got to be a spy thriller because they've got preconceived notions on certain things I think the cover contributes to that too. Uh, I think the cover can be Bit very... Yeah. Yes, yes. So if had it been a different cover, it might have... But I think they were angling for Bond they fans. Were, they were doing well two, as... two things with one stone, yeah. <laughs> Killing two birds with one stone, yeah. So what are you reading? Like, what's... Have you had a book recently that you you could say oh this is really stuck with me yes well i i love the mick heron uh slow horses series have you okay. heard of, heard of i've this? heard of them but i haven't yeah. gotten them because it's kind of difficult to get australian books over here sometimes well actually it's british yeah he's british so um ah he, okay so he was me thinking yeah. it was australian no um yeah, it's okay. it's about all the misfits from MI5, so all the rejects uh -huh. go to this particular place in the, that is called Slough House, which is, I don't think it's actually in Slough, but uh, uh, so their nickname is the Slow Horses. That That's and... just something that happens here. People will say that they live in a certain area and it's not that area. It's like yeah, 50 yeah. miles down the road. It's just the only closest thing to it. Right, yeah. right. You you learn that living in Scotland, especially if somebody says, "I I stay outside Edinburgh." Yeah, I always ask for the t name of the street because I <laughs> never believe anybody when they say that. Because oh, I've had friends that say, "Oh, I'm ten minutes from the city." Forty five mm. minutes later, we're then finding them. You know, it's like, mm, <laughs> I thought you said you were ten minutes from you know. Yeah. 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 Ten, 10 minutes from pretty much everywhere or 15 minutes that's what people say in my town and it never is and the traffic no. is, the road is horrible <laughs> the traffic's terrible well not as bad as sydney but you know sydney i've heard like, i've heard things about sydney traffic i must admit <laughs> oh, um, no, i wouldn't want to drive in sydney traffic i think i'd have to give up my car if i lived in sydney uh it's, yeah it's funny yeah. you say that because i kind of compare it to los angeles it cannot be worse than Los Angeles, I promise no, you. No, everybody drives in Los Angeles, don't they? It's like public transport doesn't exist. <laughs> it does. It's just incredibly difficult to find. Yeah, it's a um, And yeah. I also, the thing that scared us was we were on the, the freeway, as they call it there. 
and there was ends of cars missing. People driving without doors. Oh, gosh. And I'm thinking, that can't be safe. Like, you know, this this woman had lost the entire rear end of her car, and it was just this big black bin bag she had over the end. Oh, no. Yeah. And I thought, oh, oh, honey. Yeah, well, no, because see, they don't have... Um, MOTs. Like, you know how in Britain we have MOTs, uh, which basically means that the car is safe to be on the road. Yes. Um, and I, I believe you guys have something similar to that. Yes. But in Los Angeles, they don't. The only thing they have to do is do a smoke test. So to me, I'm just like, mm, this seems a bit mm, dangerous. Yeah. And it's very... All the roads are very loud because everybody uses their horns. Mm. Like, I've never heard so many car horns in my life as that that 10 days that we were in Los Angeles. Yeah, I, I noticed that like, in San Francisco too. Yeah. Uh, I went to a conference there and uh, heard some of the recordings afterwards of the workshops and every so often there's a blaring horn or there's a, a police siren. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, San Francisco is a lot like Los Angeles. You mm. know, it's just not got the blazing heat and mm. you know the the large poverty level, I suppose. But yeah, that that was something that we noticed. It was just the attitudes as well was completely different from Philadelphia to Los Angeles. Was LA was far more laid back than Philly was. Mm. Um, Philly seemed a little bit more high strung compared to what we thought City of Brotherly Love they're going to be laid back you know um, they weren't and that really surprised us and I, you know it's made me more of a West Coast fan but now that I've done I've done it Los Angeles so I only have a couple of places in America I want to go now but Australia is the, the big one on my list that I want to get done to come oh, yeah, over to visit. Yeah, I, it's my dream. The yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I just I fancy kind of seeing it for myself, um, and I've had a lot of a lot of my Shetland friends from school have actually emigrated, so oh, it would be very bizarre for me to <laughs> sort of be out there because it. I bet I'll walk down the street and meet like fifth, all of them in one sort of yeah. walk or something, and I'll be like, "Am I We're at school or something?" You know. <laughs> Where about today? I have five in Sydney and eight in uh, where you are actually Melbourne area, uh, oh, Melbourne no, and Brisbane. 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 Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, that's so. Good. Uh, it would be a, it would be a hard to avoid them all, I think. <laughs> but Shetlanders do that. We get, we we get everywhere. It's a bit like German measles, you know. Ah. Um, <laughs> it's always the running joke, you know. Uh, any Shetlander can go anywhere in the world, and they're guaranteed to meet another Shetlander. <laughs> <laughs> well, it feels like that with the Aussies too. I was on the Isle of Wight researching a book, and I was lost. I was. I had a massive map and it was very windy and I was trying to walk from 
the the coast near Ventnor up to Appledurkham. Yeah. And my B and B lady had had told me the way to go, but I have no sense of direction. And so that sort of went in one ear and out the other and, and there was no mobile reception there. So nope. I couldn't <laughs> do the Google Maps thing, which had got me around everywhere else. And so I asked the first person I came across and guess where the first person I came across was from? Australia. Australia. <laughs> I didn't know. And then my taxi driver was from Wagga Wagga. Or oh, as wow. Wagga, as we call it uh, in Australia too. So um, yes, uh, <laughs> quite a few expats there. But you know, Australians, I guess. Yeah, and yeah, we're, we have we're quite more a few. Measles, so I'm sure the English are sick of us because we've been. I love it. I I do because <laughs> I had a family who, um, they had they were Shetlanders originally. They emigrated to Australia and then they emigrated back. But they left the kids in Australia and they just came right. back as a couple because yeah. the kids were fully grown. And it, it's you can tell when somebody's just come back from a hot country in Shetland because they're <laughs> like, they're, you just see the nose and the eyes and that's it. <laughs> like they're just covered up to like the hilt. Um, or you see the girls who's gotten the nice tans because they've been away in Spain and then they're like shivering trying to get into the nightclub and we have one night. I can't show their tans because they're too cold. They are, yeah. And it, I mean, I got used, to, I weigh less than 60 kilos, so I always felt the cold. Mm. Um, so trying to dress like other girls my age was almost torture because. I just like I would put the mini skirt on, but anywhere you would go with a mini skirt, you had to walk with your hands on either side <laughs> so you could hold it down because the wind was just awful. Um, and then we discovered tights, uh, you know, the black tights that look like leggings mm -hmm. before the mainland of Scotland had. So we were wearing those under our skirts way before they became popular again, and that was just because it was so cold. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I went to Greece and I remember looking at my mom and I was this beautiful toffee colour. And I looked at my mom and I went, this isn't going to last when I go home, is it? I'm, it's just going to vanish. But I actually stayed tanned for up to a year and a half later. Wow. So I was walking around with this tan. And so I thought when I went back to LA, I would have the tan. The tan would come back. No. Oh, I bleached. No. Oh, I got whiter. Well, in Australia, we're all vitamin D deficient because we've been told to stay out of the sun because uh, skin cancer is a huge yeah. thing here. So we're all staying out of the sun and we're, <laughs> we're not getting enough vitamin D. So I actually take vitamin D tablets every day. Uh, I do that too. I, I don't have a choice. Yeah. No, well, where um, you live, I'm sure. But uh, here it's so sunny. It's so weird. Shetland has the lowest levels of vitamin D in the world. Mm. And you, you think during the summer in Shetland, the sun never sets. So wow. you get daylight from morning to night like just all the time mm -hmm. and then I think that's it's like that for 90% in summer and then in the winter you're lucky if the sun rises 
because yeah. the weather is so awful. And yeah, we have to take vitamin tablet. We have to take this high dose of vitamin D because none of us can keep it. And it's especially, I think that's why a lot of uh, Shetlanders have arthritis and it hits women particularly a lot younger. And they say that it is tied to the vitamin D. And then, of course, I expected when I was in L.A. that that would just not be a thing because sun all the time, you know. Mm. Um, but, yeah, there was a lot of my friends who worked in production companies and publishers that said they were actually vitamin D deficient because they wouldn't sit outside. Yeah. I thought that's to me, that was crazy because I was there and I was writing Dragon, the, my novel Dragon, which is sort of in processes of being uh signed and and i thought this is this is insane you know this is the best place to write because i could sit in the sun and i could be warm enough but i had enough shade that i could see the computer so i thought this was was brilliant um and my you know my husband tanned really well and i didn't so i was a bit envious <laughs> but I, yeah i couldn't i couldn't believe it and i th i think I think a lot of us have listened to all the, the I always say the, the, the dreadful warnings from the doctors about don't do this or don't do that because, you know, you'll get whatever. And I think it's kind of made us all so scared of that, that we're not, we're ending up making things worse for ourselves because we're not doing the things that our body needs, particularly if we're from a certain sort of place in the world, you know? Mm. And I think, you know, I just think it's crazy. So I, I tend not to worry about things like that as much. I try to, like, go and enjoy it. Uh, mainly because I know I have to give it up and go back to somewhere that's dark and rainy and awful. But <laughs> I think I think enjoy it while you have it. Um, and appreciate it while you have it. Because you never know how long you're going to get it for. So Yeah, especially we're in for another rainy season so well. Uh, I'm determined to enjoy the sunshine. It's a beautiful day here today, actually. Yeah, um, you'll be able to sit outside and read a good book and have a nice cup of tea and just enjoy yeah. the day. Yeah, I've got I've got another event, or a, an event to go to this afternoon. So, um, yeah, but in between I'll be out in the garden. So that'll be lovely. Yeah, that's, that's the best, when you can just sort of be outside and somewhere peaceful and relaxed and just enjoy that that world out there i think i like the slower living style to a lot of the fast-paced new york la lifestyle i that that lifestyle is not for me i like netflix and a good cup of tea and you know the company of my husband um compared to you know going from nightclub to nightclub and all that kind of stuff that that to me is insanity but I'm maybe too old. I'm 33. I think I've gotten to that point where I'm like, ugh. <laughs> well, you you do all of that stuff in your t late teens and 20s, and then, then you know, you move on, don't you, really? Most, yeah, I, I gave it three years. I did it from when I was, like, <laughs> 16 to, like, I was 20. Yeah. Pushing 21, yeah. I think, was the last time I was in a nightclub. And I was just like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> I'm just like, no, no, I'm done. I've partied in major cities and I'm just yeah it's the same everywhere you go so I was yeah. I was quite yeah I was I was never never a big partier to be fair 
who do you, like if you had infinite amount of time who would you just sit and read and enjoy you get one series and one author but it can't be the same author for the series right infinite time i think the the question sort of presupposes that it's somebody you don't normally have time for so i think uh i would say I've always wanted to read Dickens's full works. Uh, just, yeah, I think I, I remember I read a, quite a few of them, but then I got to pick with papers and I, I sort of floundered and I thought, oh, I don't have time for this. So, yeah, I think I'd like to go back and read him or Shakespeare. I'm, I'm greedy, I'll take a few. Uh, and... I couldn't think of any series that I really don't have time for, but one that I uh, stopped reading and that I would like to go back and rediscover is Lindsay Davis's Falco series set in ancient oh, really? Rome. He's a he's a private investigator in ancient Rome, and uh, just she's a great example of what I try to do with my books is that she's got that wonderful body of research behind her and she clearly knows her stuff and she knows exactly what it's like in ancient Rome but she uh it, they're great stories and she'll yeah. she'll you know it feels almost contemporary in in the way that she writes it uh so oh, yeah and and they're funny too I, I always like a bit of humor in a book so yeah I mean, that's, that's you know, what you're describing is why I fell in love with Leslie Pierce. Um, she did a, she did The Gypsy, and I just loved that story because it really encapsulates a journey from England with this disparate hope for a better life and, and not really finding it, you know, realising it's actually a bigger struggle, it's a harder struggle, and you know she has to make it worthwhile mm. and I, I thought that was so powerful in a way and it's part of the, like she's part of the reason the reason I love her is I kind of went from Catherine to her mm. and it was a good transition because she was not overly descriptive it didn't feel like she was breaking you know certain taboos of you know that we have in historical fiction writing and i think that to me made it important and made mm. it enjoyable so yeah i that's one i always sort of kind of recommend because she's not very well known as i thought she would have been so yeah i always kind of yeah. say that to people yeah uh, not, i'll try her because i have i know the name and i've seen her books around but i've never read those ones so thank you for that I always yeah, <laughs> she's, uh, more she's books amazing and uh, last year I found Elizabeth Chatwick and um, she did a it was a Viking one and I was so not sure about reading it because I am so pernickety about my Viking <laughs> like my Viking culture and mythology and I thought she's gonna ruin it. She's it's not gonna be good. It's oh no, it's not gonna be good. And I read it and I was like, actually, no, she did it justice. She yeah. presented it like it was. Like, you know, having Nor Norwegian people invading the UK and how that was for people and 
the resentment, but yeah, having that bond between women, because mm -hmm. women were women, and you know they had to go through these awful experiences and had to figure things out. And I thought, yeah, I I adore her uh, for that, and she was one of my newer fights. And I do really like her. I think she does such an she did a, such an incredible job. She, she's not with us now. Um, but yeah, I I do really admire her. So have yeah. you tried anything in the the crime range? Is there anybody that's sort of standing out to you this year in crime fiction? Crime fiction. I like Jane Harper, who is an Australian author, but she is international. I just finished doing her arc for her new novel that's coming out. Right, right. Oh, okay. Lucky so, you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I never read her before. Right. And I was just like, oh, you want... And I'm interviewing her in December, and I'm thinking, okay, this is really cool. Uh, I have no idea who this is. And somebody had said to me, you'll love her. She's like, she's an Australian Fiona Cummings. Right. And I thought, okay. <laughs> and I did. I thought she did mm. such a good job with Exiles, and she's a converted yeah. me. I have found that I am not sticking to British crime writers as much. I am sort of dipping my toe outside the British Isles for that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she does She does some really amazing work um, and I'm glad to see that that series is, is kind of continuing on. Well, I think she did a good... But yeah, if you get a chance, um, Fiona Cummings and Hanker Nasser who is the Swedish writer, he just broke into the British crime scene. He does an incredible series. I did his latest one as a, an ARC review. And he really kind of takes a crime that this poor guy who's coming back from losing his wife suddenly, and he's trying to find himself as an inspector again. And it's that journey of, well, who am I now that she's gone? Can I even do this anymore? To that realization of life and what life actually means to him and how it's changed and how everything's different. And I, I thought it was such an eye opener because he does go through that motions of grief and love and loss and then still being dog determined to solve a case. I yeah. thought it was really well done, um, and he's you know he's he's breaking out and and here he's nicknamed the the S Swedish Godfather of crime. Oh, right. mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, and he's got five books out right now. So yeah, definitely worth a read, and you'll be ahead of the game before he hits <laughs> Australia for sure. I'll have to write all these books down. Thank you for that. Yeah, well, I was really pleased that my son is uh, studying. He's in a an honours English class, so they're doing different books from the rest of the year group, and they were studying The Dry, which is a Jane, Jane Harper's real breakout uh, debut Lovely, novel, yeah. and uh, he loved it, uh, and it's... It's so quintessentially Australian because it's about the drought and about the, you know, the outback and yeah. and uh, if you're into that sort of thing and even if you're not because I'm, I must admit I'm actually not I'm not a big uh, 
you know, Aussie or the sort of reader. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but it's so well done, just written so well. And her other one, The Lost Man, I think that's her best. So if you want oh, to... I'll have to look I'll have for, to that one. for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not part of that series. It's a yeah. standalone, uh, but it's fabulous. Because I just got one... Um, I just finished interviewing... Sunny Dean and she did a book which is it's very different it's a very dark fantasy called Book Eaters mm. so the way that that story works is they have to eat the books to survive oh, no. right so they're eating books but they're absorbing what they're reading through eating uh, it and right. then the twist is her son has to eat brains to survive so like her entire world shifts again oh. um it, so that one's been a very unnervy read for me but i am um, i'm enjoying it because it's so different it's it's not something that i would have i would have picked up if you know what i mean it, it's yeah. it's one that's caught me completely unawares and i i am and it's not a long book either so it's, it's good it's not like i'm in for a long haul it's it's going to be an enjoyable fast read, I think. Mm. So yeah. Um, when you said I've... that, it just re it reminded me of Diane Setterfield's uh, *The Thirteenth Tale*, which I loved. And yeah. she says to the young woman who's a bookworm and is trying, I think she's trying to write her biography. Would you save a person, or would you save the last copy of *Jane Eyre* or whatever that yeah. classic yeah. book that she loved was? And I think you can sort of hear readers everywhere going, save the book. <laughs> save the book, save the book. Yeah, yeah. No, I've been, I've, I've, yeah, that's an awful one, actually. Oh, I would hate to, hate to have to make that choice. Yeah. So is there, um, is there an author, past, present, who's sort of influenced, inspired, and it made you excited about books? And you get an author for each one. So you get an author for influenced, an author for inspired, and an author for excited. Oh, okay. Uh, influenced, I would have to admit that Georgette Hare, who I read when I was about 12, 11 or 12, influenced me a lot. I started off, my first book was a bit of a, a Regency romance knockoff. So, um, yeah. It never saw oh, the we all have one of those. <laughs> so, so I loved her wit, and, uh, and and she was a meticulous researcher as well. So, uh, she probably influenced me quite a bit. Uh, excited, I remember reading *Gone Girl* by Gillian Flynn, and it just blew me away. I thought the writing was amazing, and the twist was terrific. Uh, and what she had to say about, you know, the, the economic situation at the time and the dynamic between husband and wife, it just, that really excited me and almost revived my, my enthusiasm for books. Uh, and what was the other one? Inspired. Uh, yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert, uh, Big Magic. Oh, she, okay. Yeah, it's a it's a book for writers really, but it's yeah. it, it, I just found her philosophy on how she had this mega mega success 
with a book that that you eat, pray, love. Uh, yeah. But that she didn't let that define her or stop her from going on and doing completely different things because yeah. she has always been a writer. She knows that it's, I mean, a lot of these things become phenomenons, phenomena, uh, partly because of marketing. Uh, yeah. And I don't know if she said this, but this is what I think that you can have many, many brilliant books that do not hit because they just didn't have the publishing dollars behind them. And yeah. so, you know, this was this phenomenon that if she had let herself think, oh, I've got to replicate that, you could never replicate that. Yeah. You know, so, so her philosophy is that she just writes what she wants to write and whatever success happens or doesn't happen that's in in the laps of the gods basically so and it um, is very very true because i you know anybody who's been an independent author at some point in their lives understands the pressure of that because we have to do it ourselves we have to go out and find interviews we have to get papers to do you know interviews and push us and promote us and and all that kind of stuff um so it's you know we have a i think anyone who's independent has got a deep respect for marketing teams over the world Mm -hmm. and then you know when you get into a big publisher you have to hope that they have a marketing budget for you and that that marketing budget's used correctly and that you get a team that can get you placed in the right places for your particular style of book to make you a seller and reading the markets is not easy it is not easy and I think a lot of the times marketing people get brought in and they're said right here make this book into something big and it's just not the right time for that mar- that book to be out in the market and yeah, exactly. I think that's a bit sad um, mm. but it is, it's true and I think we're now consuming more books than what we used to I think as a society, COVID has made people go, oh, I could take a book with me and then if I get stuck in a queue, I've got something to read or, you know, if I get stuck in the doctor's office, there's a book there to read rather than picking up a magazine that maybe 50 people with different bugs and viruses has already used. (laughs) So I think in a society, we're getting smarter and I think what we're, we're reading has changed as well and that's just to do with you know society and changes and you know what tastes we might get sick of fantasy for a while so we'll go and we'll read historical we might get sick of historical we'll go read romance books um you know that's what makes the market so fickle i think that's my take on it yeah and and very sadly i was told that a lot of the new york or u.s accounts are not taking as much world war ii fiction anymore so the you know then then the question is well do i push push forward into this negative space where costco is saying no we don't want those books or or do you pivot and say well my core story I, i write about women who are largely undiscovered uh, by history and I can do that in any era 
So yeah. find, find, you know, it, it's a bit of a challenge to find. I would, I would not give up with the U.S. because if you look at the track record, they've gotten hidden figures was big recently. You're seeing more movement in the World War Two things because people are curious about the war in Ukraine and they're curious about, well, what's this going to mean for us if this happens because people are curious you know we're all naturally curious and we all want to know what could happen and I think if we don't give up on that market and there is publishers in the US and there is sales of the, the books in the US are they bestseller sales? no but you don't write this genre thinking you're going to be an instant bestseller you write it because it's a story you're passionate about and it's you want to tell that story you know if you want a bestseller you you bust your ass in kids or you go into romance or you go into one of the markets that's known and has a supported track record for making people bestsellers um but i don't recommend that ever drive anybody when it comes to writing because at the end of the day it's about your stories that you're telling and your stories are important to the world whether you're published by a publisher or whether you do it yourself. There will always be one reader out there, at least one reader out there, that will want to read you and want to know your story. Yeah, I guess, I guess that is true. It, do, it just depends. I mean, writing is my income. You know, yes. it's my job. So I Same. do have to consider what the market wants, what my publisher wants, because they do have a view. <laughs> so so on the one hand, yes, you do need to tell the stories you need to tell. But I do find that a new challenge can be very good for my creativity. And if someone yeah. says, okay, we want, you know, try a, try a different era, I've written in Regency England, I've written in Georgian England, uh, World War II France, I've done a sort of foray into Cold War, so uh, yeah. it's not World War Two that I'm stuck on. It, it, it's the no, no, I wasn't meaning that. No. Yeah, yeah, so so I, I do hear what you're saying and I do believe that, you know, if you're passionate about World War Two. And that is the story you want to tell, yeah, of course. But uh, I do, I do follow the market to an extent. I'm never going to go and write a fantasy novel just because fantasy novels are hot right now. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, within limits, I, I I will find a story, and it's amazing. Uh, I actually went through six proposals recently, and. Wow. I, yeah, to to just get something that my editor and agent think is worthy. So, you know, as a working writer, can you really hold on to your book of your heart when you've got to pivot six times? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that's a great thing for, I think, one of the things we get taught here in, in school um, or university, because I'm at university now, is that you need to be able to sort of diversify like you've done and you need to be able to move within either a genre or between genres 
you need to be able to do that and you need to be able to pivot and, and change with the times and change with how things are done. I mean, I know that better than anyone. I, I battled for years to make sports romance relevant um, only to have my, my wrestling novels language at the bottom of the pile. And mm. now I have learned to write, Take I took time away and I, I learned about writing different genres, about putting myself out there, trying something different. I should check the markets more often, I know that in myself, um, but I still have passionate stories where I occasionally do want to write a cowboy story or I do want to go do a murder mystery and I, I'm lucky that I have people I can reach out to for detectives to check my work or whatever it is, but I have learned that pivoting is the be-all and end-all of you know what I need to be able to do. Um, will I will I find a new agent since my agent retired? Uh, probably a long time coming. I will eventually, but to me that's not important. It's keeping the stories going. Um, every writer should never have a long period of time where we're not writing, because it's very difficult to get back in the rhythm of it. Um, yeah, I totally agree with that. It, it is very hard to get back into it if you. If I, I mean, I was really ill last year and I didn't do as much writing as I would have. And this year I have struggled to get back into it because it's completely destroyed all of the... For me, it's routines. Like, that's how I do it. I have to yeah. have a set routine with set guidelines of when, where, and how long. And I just don't have that. So I'm kind of almost rebuilding everything from the ground up. And that's really difficult. And I should know how to do this because I do this frequently because of my arthritis. But it is it, it's very difficult for me to go, you know, nine months, ten months, sometimes more without writing because it's, it's an itch you can't scratch. I don't know about you, but I get, like, characters that just bug the crap out of me till I write it down. Yeah. And, you know, you could be having a serious conversation with somebody and you can be thinking about this character and you're like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I stay on this conversation when, you know, ignore this stuff back here? It's, it's you know, any writer should understand that. <laughs> yeah, um, I, my process is very uh, tortured in that way. because, And yeah. it's interesting because I'm doing uh, Becca Symes uh, write better faster course at the moment and she's sort of saying you know if that's how you've written 16 books that is you really need to go with it and I, I struggle against it every single time but I Same. think a lot I research a lot I think a lot I think a lot and I procrastinate and then uh when I feel I'm really that bad for I, that too <laughs> I, can't, I absolutely have to write the book or it's not going to be done on time uh, so I, Start, but I have to do. I have to sit down at the computer at the same time every day, like you. I need yeah. to, and I make myself. I get up straight away, coffee, sit at the computer, and try to write. And sometimes you have to give yourself permission just to write a hundred words or a sentence. Yeah. But yeah. it's building that habit, and not everybody's like that. No, but it's. No. And then when I'm in the story. I will, people will talk to me and I'll have to ask them to repeat my poor children, I feel sorry for them 
because I'm not think I'm just in the story the whole yeah. time. I'll go the wrong way when I'm driving, and mm -hmm. you know I'm probably really annoying to be around <laughs> because I'm just in that. I'm just in it the whole time, and and so that makes me scared to enter that zone yeah, because I know that yeah I really have to make myself come out of it to do all the life yeah. stuff that you need to do. <laughs> exactly. Like and, I was um, doing the dishes yeah. the other day and I'm writing a witch story and it's just this sort of young teenage, she's a bit of a brat to begin with, mm -hmm. you know, and she doesn't want to go home and she doesn't want to talk to her mother. And, you know, just all the usual teen stuff that you, you know, you have. And I couldn't get the dishes done. I was just, I was just so mad because I couldn't get the piece I wanted out of my head. It was mm. like I had the block of the words, but it was sitting there and it was just annoying my brain. And there's been times where my best friend will actually wave her hand across my eyes <laughs> because she yeah. knows I'll be like dissecting a scene or I'll be... I'll be giving her a funny look, but it's not her I'm giving, you know, the look to. It's the character that I'm thinking about. And I'm, you know, we you write better in a trance. I always said that. Like, mm. you have to get into that mind frame of trance because that's you 100% pure to the story, yeah. to the characters. And I listen to K-pop, <laughs> strangely enough, because yeah. I don't know why, but I do when I write. And uh, I listen I to Double Dragon Pair Story, so yeah, it's just yeah. normal, you know. But but I know when I've been in a trance because I have missed a whole playlist of songs, yeah. and I'm up to you know what I started with or whatever. You 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 realize you're back in the beginning, and you're like, yeah, and it's amazing it. how the trance happens for the same songs as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, so, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really bad magic. like if I'm writing fantasy I will play like the vampire soundtrack the vampire diaries mm. soundtrack or I oh, if yeah. I'm having a really bad time of writing I might put twilight on yeah. or just something that kind of triggers that angsty feeling that you get mm. in the pit of your stomach and the atmosphere and I go with it yeah mm. and I, I think for me, I, it's very difficult because I can't bring my setting with me everywhere, like my mood settings I like to do. Yeah. So I might make my coffee curry, write for a bit, talk to my friends from all over the world for a little hour or two, and then by that time I need to make coffee again. So I go back to the kitchen, and then something might come to me if I'm having a good day. If I'm having a bad day, I'm swearing at the kettle, going, <laughs> God damn you, would you just give me something? <laughs> um, I think my neighbors think I'm crazy because I know I've been standing at the sink at least twice swearing at something in my head and them staring back at me as if to say, is she talking to me? <laughs> and I'm not. I'm really not. But it's that kind of instant where you're just away with it and you're just trying to figure out that stick or that problem that you just can't get quite by. Yeah. Are you like me? Do you drift to one genre when you're in the bookstore? Or do you just sort of like... Browse? Oh, yeah. I, I tend to go for crime, actually. Um, oh, okay. In a bookstore. 
It, my recreational reading is often crime or yeah. psychological thriller kinds of things. I, I love Lisa Gardner. I buy all of her serial killer book. Well, she used to do serial killers. She's not doing them so much anymore. But uh, yeah, yeah, I found yeah. them really gripping. And uh, yeah, I think crime. I, I must admit, that's, that's how I got into Fiona Cummings because she did um, The Bone Collector. Oh, yes. And, oh, not the book to read while you're lying in a hospital bed. Um, <laughs> I did. I read the whole thing in two weeks because I was in hospital and oh, I was freaked out by the janitor in the ward because the book, I knew that the killer was a janitor for some reason oh. really early on and it yeah. freaked me out and the book <laughs> out and I think I creeped the poor janitor out because <laughs> kept giving him funny looks as if to say don't trust you <laughs> <laughs> um, you know and then I, I got her, I got her next one and it just sort of snowballed from there she's such a she's a pace writer and she's just released into the dark and that's a very female heavy orientated book i didn't see the twist in that usually there's like ones where i'll be like mm, yeah i can see where this is going yeah. and then there's other ones where i'm like mm, do i see where it's going um so yeah i i'm terrible because i i might go crime or i might go you know um I've sort of done a lot of YA, but I think that's because I'm I'm writing YA, so I'm needing to get into that headspace. But mm -hmm. I tend to to read whatever genre I'm reading. Bef usually, is what I end up writing because it's yeah. it's getting into that mind space of uh, what's needed for that genre. Do you have that like where you need to almost set up the genre yourself? Uh, I probably don't so much but I do have to read not have to but I quote for, for quite a few books so I've always yeah. got a historical fiction novel that I must read to, yeah. to give an endorsement or not you know I've, I've only endorsed the ones I like but uh, yeah. that keeps me well supplied with historical fiction and I find that often I'll, I'll either be reading friends books because, uh, you know, I, I do try to keep up with uh, friends. I've got many, many writer friends. So uh, yeah. that is really quite a challenge. So that's It is. You know, when you start making and, them, yeah. It's, yeah, it's... yeah. Contemporary fiction, things like that. My mother-in-law is great because she reads a lot of literary fiction. And, uh -huh. and I tend to stay away from literary fiction because I worry that... Uh, It'll be terrible. <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry to literary writers out there, but there, there's some really bad literary fiction out there. There and is. I don't, there I, is. I want to go there. So she recommends to me fabulous, fabulous books, and yeah. many of which have really stayed with me. Like the Kite Runner, uh, I think about that book. You know, years later, I, I still think about that book. Uh, so I really appreciate curated literary fiction as well I, I like to read widely probably don't read horror uh, or science I'm not a horror fiction. fan either I, no, no. I struggle just, with that um, one it, it's funny how I can read serial killers but I don't like the icky the, the, horror, the gore. horror thing yeah the gore basically mm. it's the same for me I could 
I could read, like, you know, true crime or, or watch a true crime thing, and that's fine. But when it gets into the gore of it, I can't do it. I can't. I just, no. Because no. to me, it's not thrilling. To me, almost, I have a very hard time saying, but that's not a person. Right. You know, like, th th or that yeah. is a person. Why are you promoting murder? Mm. You know, like, it, it's almost sort of like a an argument inside my mind that sort of makes me not enjoy it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I, it's just that visceral feeling that I don't enjoy. Yeah. yeah. When I, this question that I'm about to ask you, I'll give you some, some background on it. So as um, readers, uh, we all have books we don't like, and we are asking this question on this podcast to try and give reviewers and people that just enjoy reading books uh, an understanding of the negative effects that bad reviews have on authors particularly if you just write things like did not finish or you know this is terrible but no reasoning to it and that's why when i when i ask this question it's so that us as authors can almost be like well this is how you should deal with it or you should you know you should do it this way and I'm hoping if we, we lead by example we might get a lot of the, the bad um, behaviour that authors are experiencing with bad reviews to not happen um, so the question is has there ever been a book that you've picked up and you've wondered like why did I read why did I begin reading this or I really wish I didn't start this one. Oh, you know, I don't like to be negative about other authors' work publicly. Well, you don't have to name it. No. It's, it's just to show, you know, yeah. how we should approach saying we don't like a piece of work. Yes, okay. Well, I would say that I judge a lot of contests uh, romance writers of Australia contests yeah. and what I do see often in romance novels that don't work for me is I can't, why why do these two people actually fall in love yeah. what is yeah. it about this person with this not not that oh he's so hot and she's so beautiful what yeah. is it about these specific people and I think that is not done often enough no. in romance novels. They're just in love because they're in this book together. You know, somebody said that about Pretty Woman, apparently, that, that they fall in love because they're in this movie together. Uh, and I, 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 I think it's a bit more than that, but okay. Yeah, I, I think it is more than that. But I like to see, you know, if you know about writing novels, the the hero and heroine or the whatever gender you're you're writing the the couple uh need to uh challenge each other out of their comfort zones you know it's that it's almost like the hero's journey they need to challenge each other push them out of their comfort zones and help them along their character arc to be the person they always were meant to be they see the true person underneath and I don't see that enough with romance novels which uh, it, don't it's, yeah 
it's one of the things that I will take personal time out to do. Like, I will sit and say, okay, I think we'll use Ride With Me, because that's an easy one for me. But for me, Ride me With Me seemed like, well, Lorna could live her life without Cole, right? And that was the, that was the struggle I had. And, I, I, and it bugged me, because I'm detail-orientated. And I said, well, why do they love each other? It, it can't just be more than they were high school boyfriend and sweet, you know, yeah. sweethearts, high school couple, whatever. And I realized it was they fulfilled something within each other. Mm. It was an element that they fulfilled, whether it was Lorna had endless amount of strength, but she she didn't have that one person that could love her in the way that she needed to be loved and didn't drain her further of her energy and her light and her goodness and for him it was a case of you know he comes back and life's not quite how he left it and and he had to rediscover himself you know he's more than just the cowboy that treated horses at you know, rodeos and conventions. He's the guy that is going to fix a family, that's going to help heal hearts and not just minds and not just animals. And the two of them together create something beautiful. And that's what that was the moment I was like, okay, this is a good story. This is yeah. this is a story that needs to be told. Um and it wasn't the fact that there's kids that get, you know, fostered or kids that get adopted. It wasn't the fact that there's horses being used for therapy for children with disabilities. It was much more than that. And when I stopped focusing on all the other details and I actually started to ask the bigger questions, the story started to come to me. Yes. And that's to me, is what makes a good story. It, yeah. You know, you could have the worst editor in the world but if you've got an amazing concept you'll find the right home for it eventually not saying that editing isn't important because it is and i'm dyslexic so i should know but if it's a story that just sings even if you are dyslexic it can find a really good home oh yeah i mean i think you need a good storyteller first and foremost don't you in a, a novel and then the rest can be the nest, uh, but but you need that core story, or all the editing in the world isn't going to save it. No, no. And I would like to find one editor at a company that I can just focus constantly on the writing. That's my dream goal, of finding somebody that, like, once I've got like, as I'm one of these. Pre- very awful people as I started the year and I have a notebook and I write down every idea I have and then I work out what can I make into stories and then I expand on it so I would kind of almost like to have my little stack of six books or eight books I'm going to write that year or whatever it is hand it off to the agent wait to see if any of them are what you can sell or what you can home have it handed back for me to know what I can write that year and just focus on the writing and in doing these kind of conversations with people 
That would be my dream. And I envy anybody who has that. Totally envy anybody who has that. Because it's not, it's very difficult to be in a, an indie position where you you know that you have to get up and you've got to send out one day a week is for, you know, finding the right agent. Or next day is, okay, I'll look for publishers. And, do you know what I mean? You've got to go down this sort of awful checklist of, during the week and you don't get to just focus on the book. And mm. deadlines and stuff like that. Um so I I admire those that have that that life, and then I admire the ones that are grinding it out in the indies and who are constantly trying to change people's ideas from an indie perspective. Oh, I totally admire indies, uh, and I've often toyed with the idea of going indie myself or hybrid, but I do know myself fairly well and. I do like to focus on the writing and I yeah. think I would be quite distracted by all of the business aspects. So yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see, but um, I definitely, I think maybe what you could do is just have little different seasons. Like you have a season where all you do is write and then you yeah. take a couple of weeks to, to query your agents and, and publishing. I mean, that's you're, you're looking at traditional publishing then. I would like to get there eventually, yeah. yeah and I think, yeah. I mean, I've had people say, you, you know, you've got the amazing storytelling. It's very much my, my dyslexia holds, holds me back. I've, I've had mm. publishers that say, we won't touch you because you're dyslexic. And that wasn't traditional, oh. that was indie. That was an independent publisher that said that. And that was actually fairly recently. Um... So I would like to find somewhere that does not hold disabilities against a writer who wants a good story that they, that okay, might need a bit of spit and polish to get, get it to where it needs to be, but understands that it's worth doing that to get it there because it will make its money back with the right people behind it. And the great thing is now I have a lot of friends who if I ever do get into that position where I can say, hey, can you guys, you know, uh, quote me here or you know, tell yeah. me what you think, I know mm -hmm. that they'll be honest with me and they'll mm -hmm. come back and they'll be like, yeah, this is really good or mm, I think you need to go back to the drawing board, you know, and that to me, even if I don't get the traditional now, I feel like I've done really well because I have that, that kind of group that I know I can turn to and say, hey, do you want to check this out and see if, if this is something you'll put your name to as well? Yeah, I mean, I feel very sad to hear that that people won't work with you because you're dyslexic because that is just editing, copy editing, isn't it? I mean, yep. I would have thought that was the, the manuscripts coming to publishers in different dates of of readiness you could yep. perhaps get somebody to check your work before you hand it in uh, i don't really see that that it should be a barrier at all it shouldn't um, be but it you no. know a lot of people they want it almost perfect before you hand it in mm. and you know you can work with i work with editors off different places and i haven't found the one that, that 
catches it. Because my dyslexia is, it's grammar based. It's very grammar based. Or I'll put in the right word, just the wrong spelling. Yes. So like, it could be, I caught a cold and I could put in like just the same kind of word, coughed or, you know, caught, just not spelled the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very bad for there and you are. Yeah. Those are my, my Achilles heel. Um, but I so many people. <laughs> yeah. But then I look at it myself and I think for somebody like me who's only got half an education, I left school with huge gaps in my education because I was sick all the time as a kid. And I've written over 10 books. I've written three screenplays. I have signed shopping agreements for a feature and a pilot. And I have a podcast. And I'm in my third year of Open University. To me, that's a pretty good achievement set compared to where I started off. Yeah, fantastic. Good on you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I uh, think... look, maybe you just need to find a good copy editor who can work with yeah. you and then the publisher doesn't need to know. Exactly. Or have you tried dictating because I suppose you still have to correct. Oh, you have that. to correct more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I, I, I learned that the hard way. Um, mm-hmm. Last year I had to dictate my paper and it was awful because my brain goes faster than my mouth yes. and I have to be careful that I don't talk too fast because then the computer doesesn't pick it up yes um, so I, I kind of had to live and learn with that but I do sometimes I will go into dictation mode if there's a word I can't spell or I know the word but I just have no idea where to begin um, and those things help they do help and I will go and I'll check um I would say my grammar and my writing is vastly better now than it's ever been. But I still have my moments of oops. So yeah, I'm aware. So moving into writing, how did you go about sort of creating the darker undertones of your story, that the, the nail-biting moments almost? Uh, I don't really consciously create those things but I feel it when I'm writing so as we were talking about the trance you know I I just feel it in my body and I I sort of I don't see the book as a movie in my mind but it is a little bit like that I'm in the story so yeah uh, I, I think you know consciously if you were to do that you might slow the action down a bit and notice little details about the the setting and and how everybody is uh, but it is very instinctive for me so I can't really tell you a technique um, for me I'm, I'm pretty I mean I have to kind of be able to transport my being able to set a mood anywhere so mm. I might have candles in the house with a certain scent that will bring it to the foreground or I'll listen to a certain kind of music or I'll drink a certain kind of coffee or a certain, you know, I will add or take away things that I need to get into that mind frame. And my husband thinks it's crazy because he's like, well, what what difference is this cup going to make to, you know, your writing? <laughs> he's <Yeah>. not a writer. <laughs> yeah, like to him, it's like, huh? 
and I'm like, because to me this character would choose this, or it c connects me into that character. So yeah, that's yeah. how I do it, and it's very difficult if you're in the hospital. So I have to rely rely on music. Yeah. Um, I don't use pine dress. There's something everybody asks me. Oh, what, what's your pine dress? I I sat for two days and I did up boards that I never looked at. And I have never no. used it since. I thought this yeah. this is not not helpful in the least. It's just another procrastination form. Um, but yeah, I will. You I'll... sound like you're an auditory learner, like me. Yep. Uh, and with a bit of tactile in there as well. So you need yeah. to experience and listen. And yep. I find uh, storyboards, collages, things like that. I I quite enjoy doing them, but I never yeah. look at them. Yeah. And my my writing space <laughs> is like a little cave um, because my the way we we renovated our house and my office ended up being at the front of the house with French doors, which is just no because that's visual distraction for me. I see it people is. walking past, somebody comes in the gate, you know, I I'm or I'm worried somebody will come in the gate, so. I ended up putting a desk in our media room, which has black walls, black <laughs> curtains. So, you know, people try to interview me with a video interview and it's like I'm the princess of darkness <laughs> coming in. I like that. But, but yeah. it's sensory deprivation actually works better for me. Or I, I, yeah. I can work in a crowded coffee shop as long as I don't know anybody there. Yeah, that's 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 my thing. Yeah. I have to be completely anonymous. Um, yeah. Or worst, I can't have somebody suddenly start talking to me yeah. in the coffee shop, which has happened. Like <laughs> most writers know, if there's a computer and somebody's typing, don't talk to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I've had young budding writers that will come up and they'll be like, "What are you writing?" Oh, no. Or can I buy you a coffee? I'm like, so I had to stop. I had to. I had to. I had to stop writing. But COVID also meant that I couldn't go and write because I, I was immuno. I am immunosuppressed, so it meant that was just a no go for me. Yeah. So I had to. I had to try and do my writing when COVID started in my mother's house, where she is really interested in my life and interested oh. in my husband. So I would try and sneak through at six o'clock in the morning, like, <laughs> and then she would come down and it would be dead. Like I would just have dead space. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, um, and then especially like my dad would want to spend time or my husband was really good at, if he knew I was writing, he wouldn't interrupt, but he would forget to stop the rest of the family from doing it. Mm. So... <laughs> So it was yeah. hard, and, and that's what threw me completely out of my writing style entirely, was because I had to stay with my parents. Uh, I was locked in with COVID, and I had two parents that didn't know how to entertain themselves in their house. Um, so I had to come up with... I remember being awake at 2 o'clock in the morning thinking, how the hell am I going to entertain my parents? Yeah. And oh, coming up with diamond painting right. and... Uh, cross stitch and like rug children. making and anything I could think of that would yeah. challenge them so that uh, 
I could tire them out mentally so that they would want to go and do something else and leave me alone. Um, and I also had to start writing in bed. But I actually made the rule recently that I don't write in bed now. Because I need sort of like that, that divide between being in bed for sleep and sort of having a successful sleep and then, you know, hospitalization, the difference, you know, because yes. um, exactly. last year I had three, yeah. three weeks I was in and I couldn't talk yeah. and I wrote because I couldn't sleep. I got like three hours a day asleep and I had a very noisy roommate. So I had to come up with something to do. So I rewrote one of my novels in three weeks. I was the only person who was living, lying in ICU writing at two o'clock in the morning. Because I couldn't sleep. I couldn't think of anything else to do. And I never knew when they were going to come. And almost the, the pressure of not knowing when they were going to come actually made me finish stuff. Yeah. So well, that you know, there you it go. worked. That worked. It did. Yeah, it, it was. I, well, it was a good inspiration. Yeah. I, I've got. Oh, I had small children when I started writing. Uh, yeah. Well, publishing, and uh, my son is very talkative. One of my sons is very talkative, and gets up very early. So I used to get up at about three or four in the morning, just so that I could get my writing done before he got up at five. And started yep. asking me questions. <laughs> and yep. my, once he knew I needed, I was on deadline and I needed to be left alone. And uh, this was when I used to write at the front of the house. And he ran into my office to get a piece of paper from the printer, ran out again, ran back in to show me the, the sign he'd made, which was do not disturb. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was like cute. disturbed me twice just to make the sign. <laughs> But, you know, I bet you stuck it up on the door so that you yeah, know, people well, wouldn't. You, yeah. you just have to, you know, they're, they're little and, and you have to do a bit of give and take. I must admit, I, I am slightly terrified by the idea of having a baby and riding at the same oh, time. It's but <laughs> I'm also hoping that the lack of sleep, which seems to be a really good motivator for me, might actually help me finish the rest of my stuff yeah because i might be forced to, to do it yeah, <laughs> yeah like I oh baby's asleep <laughs> yeah. you know just yeah. get it done that's right you you have to do it and so you do it's amazing so what would you say drew you to this genre more than anything else what would you put your finger on and say that's what got me to do this Oh, it's, I've just always loved history and particularly British history for some reason. Uh, my father was a keen historian and he used to just tell me stories about kings and queens and battles yeah. and things as a child. So I really grew up with it. Uh, and it, it was a bit of a challenge in Australia because at the time I started writing, they did not publish European set history. In historical oh, fiction, okay. and then Kate Morton sort of took the the book world by storm, and she was yeah. writing these gothic 
sort of mystery about a house and dual timeline sort of things. So uh, I had been writing romance, historical romance for the, the US market uh, at that time because I just couldn't sell anything here. I wasn't interested in Australian history. Apologies to convicts and things, but you know, that just doesn't interest me. It just no, depresses no. me. So, and you couldn't sell convict books either. You know, there really wasn't a lot of historical fiction coming out of, of Australian publishers at that time. And so uh, I wrote 10 books for Berkeley and St. Martin's Press. And then my St. Martin's Press started selling the rights to my Australian, my, my historical romance to an Australian publisher, Penguin. And I got to know the editor there and she said, look, we'd really love you to write one, you know, a book for us. What would you like to do? And I said, well, you know, I've got this idea for a dual timeline. Yeah. And so that developed there. But really, I probably would have liked to have written historical fiction from the start. It was yeah. just that at that stage, you know, this is in the dark ages, there was no self-publishing. Um, yeah, there was barely internet. <laughs> I had internet. No, at, I, I, I at, get at that. Work. Yeah, yeah, I had internet at work, but not at home, and so you know, this the traditional way was the only way at that time. Yeah, yeah. I so mean, that's how I got into it. To be honest, I I don't think I would have. Thinking back on it, I would have rather not have started in sports romance if I'd known it was an uphill battle from the get-go. Um, yeah. Particularly trying to push wrestling up a hill to readers who've never really experienced wrestling before. Right, right. Well, you know, Susan Elizabeth Phillips did it with her Chicago Stars, but basically there's no sport in those books. No, <laughs> no. Because because the received wisdom, whether it's true or not, was that you couldn't write about politicians, sports people or um, yeah. artists, I think. No. And it, it, it was funny to me because if you look at the criteria for what romance society thinks of the romantic guy or the perfect specimen and then you look at wrestlers most wrestlers mm -hmm. they're not huge men with endless muscles they are normally well-toned well-developed guys who have these absolutely incredibly different personalities mm -hmm. and each one just I felt like, you know, it was sad to me, oh, well, football, you know, there was so much of that, and then there was so much baseball, and so much, you know, all these different sports, and I was like, well, what about wrestlers? Like, wrestlers break necks and bones and tear ligaments and stuff, it's really awful, some of the things they do get, you know, have to go through, and I thought, well, why why not go into that world and, and shed a little light and maybe, you know, change a little perspective? And I never thought, you know, 12 years later, I would still be holding the banner up going, yeah, you know, there's stories <laughs> to be told here. Open yeah. your mind. Spe go spend a week hanging out with a wrestler. Follow him around on his tour. You know, because they'll do maybe sort of, 10 to 11 shows in a week mm. you know 
okay, it's only like eight minutes or maybe five minute matches, but it's what they do to themselves in that five to eight minute matches. A lot of the stunts is like being in a car wreck. Yeah. And then they're expected to go and have a drink and a shower, come back out, socialize with fans, sell their merchandise to the fans, pack up, go to the next town, do it all over again. And, is, this, uh, is this more the, um, is this like the MF, oh, what is it? The, WWE? the American wrestlers, yeah. American pro wrestlers. Yeah, I, I, I would have thought there would be a market for that. So did I. It? So did there I. was a television series of females. Yeah. Well, was it Glow? Was Glow female? was out, yeah. Glow was on yeah. Netflix, it did well. Yeah. And um, I I actually started writing a lot of my wrestling books sort of 11, 12 years ago. Mm. So there wasn't these shows out. It was just your WWE and your, your mm. independent wrestling scenes. But saying that, I have a lot of wrestling friends, and some of them will tease me about what I've done. I get that. Do you have to sexualize us? Um, oh, kind yeah. of comments, or, or you know, say, yeah, stop living do. out your fantasies about us, you know? Like, all these sort of jokes. Yeah. Um, but they respect it because I've been able to lift some of the darker elements to the surface without people noticing. And it's started having that effect of people are asking questions. Things are changing. Habits wow. are changing. Wow, the way wow. that they're being approached and they're being handled is changing. So I think in a good way, even though I've not had a rock as bestseller or whatever, I did have a, a traditional, uh, it was a traditional hybrid publisher, but I never got charged for it. What I didn't know was they took my advance from the marketing budget and gave it to oh. us, and that kind of crippled our entire sales idea because um, Joe couldn't come over from Germany because they didn't pay for his, his visa ticket. Um, and then I had to show up to all these signings with fans who were waiting for him and, of course, oh. explain, hey... Sorry, Joe can't make it. It's just me, you know. Yeah. Um, and then it was also there was times like where I had to stand to be like a car salesman, and be like, "Hey, buy my book," <laughs> you know, uh, because nobody mm. had done any marketing for me coming to do the signings, um, which was a bit awful. But I I got through it and I sold out everywhere I went except for I think one store, and to me that was success. Yeah, you know, absolutely. With no marketing, no promotion, uh, I did it all of myself, and I was quite proud. You know, I didn't have this big burly wrestler standing next to me going, "Fight!" <laughs> you know, like, intimidating every bookworm in this the place. You know, um, but yeah, it was good, and I I've learned from my journey that I enjoy writing other genres. I love wrestling. I will always love wrestling has a huge safe big place in my heart but I like I do like writing crime and I do like diving into subjects that isn't touched or hasn't been touched because usually there's a nugget in there for me that just mm. just set my mind off yeah. I think that's the, the important thing about writing is you're doing self-discovery as you're kind of going along 
Well, you answered this question earlier, um, so I'm going to skip over that. That was about whether you're seeing a movie or if it was a jigsaw puzzle for oh, you. Yeah. Yes. Have you had a character that stayed with you the most or the longest? Uh, one that I've written was probably from The Wife's Tale, which was partly based in uh, 18th century Isle of Wight, and her name was Delaney. And she was based on uh, two, two real women from history. One was uh, Lady Worsley, Seymour Lady Worsley, who was, lived at Appledurkham on the Isle of Wight. Yeah. And she was, part, uh, she was subject of a very famous, scandalous uh, uh, criminal conversation case. So I'm a former lawyer. And this, this action of criminal conversation was fascinating to me because uh, what it was, was a husband could sue his wife's lover for damages because she was his chattel oh, and yeah. the lover had damaged the goods. So yep. it wasn't a reciprocal yep. suit. And it's actually still available in some American states, I believe. But uh, so, so Seymour was aristocratic she brought a big dowry to the marriage and then the the husband sued she well she had many lovers and one of the things that they proved in that case was that she had so many lovers that it you know what were the damages so that was very but but the thing was that the woman never got representation so it yeah. was between the two men. She never got to say her piece or be represented yeah. in any way. And it was just one was trying to make out that she was, you know, in every man's bed. The other was trying to make out that she was as pure as the driven snow because yeah. then he'd get more damages. And it was just very demeaning. Yeah. Um, and then Caroline Norton, who was actually a writer, and her, she had an affair with Lord Melbourne, who was uh, Victoria's, Queen Victoria's Prime Minister. And, I mean, it is fairly well accepted that she actually did have the affair, but it was a politically motivated lawsuit that the husband uh, instituted against Lord Melbourne. They were trying to bring down the government, basically. And... Uh, but Caroline was quite a, a, an admirable figure. She was, it, the husband was a bit of a ne'er-do-well and she'd, he had actually condoned her affair because he wanted a preferment out of Lord Melbourne and he was appointed a magistrate or something um, yeah. because of that affair and then he turns around and so, But anyway, so she, she was a writer. She earned her own money and... Uh, he abandoned her, the husband abandoned her, took her children because men, men had custody of legitimate children in those days yep. and one of whom eventually died because um, she, he, he just parked these children with people in the country and left them and they were just completely neglected and I think he yep. contracted tetanus and died and he didn't need to her. So, it was very tragic, but the thing that really got me was that the husband took all of the royalties that she yep, earned yep. from her books because copyright was property and 
he owned the copyright and he had books. And so I was so mad. I had to write a story where this woman experienced all these things and won <laughs> in the end. Yeah. So, um, uh, you it's know, good to write your wrong. Yeah. 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 So Caroline Norton's that, that case was dismissed. It was, he was found not guilty of, um, of criminal conversation. The government stayed in power and, uh, and she, but she went on to campaign for child custody rights because she'd had such a terrible time trying to get her children back. Of course, um, yeah. And of course, one died before she could. So, yeah, that that character of so my character Delaney is a very strong woman. She's a writer. She goes through all these trials and. Uh, the, they say that the pen is mightier than the sword, so she used her writing skills to trounce the husband. But, uh, and it works, yeah. yeah, it, yeah. You know, not everybody reads the, particularly men in those days, didn't always read the books. So, yeah, you could you could definitely get away with something like that. Is there a character that you wish you could have written more about? Do you have one that just sticks there? Oh a good question uh, I think I think I would say Catherine Dior I I would uh, love to know more about her experiences and write more about her but also uh, Sisters of the Resistance was set during World War II and shortly afterwards I would I would also like to write about her later life because she yeah. became a dealer in, in flowers and she grew flowers in the south of France and uh, supplied flowers to all of the perfume, the, the haute couture houses for their perfume. So I just thought what a, what a lovely uh, ending to a very tragic beginning for her. And, yeah, uh, it would be it would be lovely yeah. to see how she kind of gets to the next chapter in her life, and I think that's the thing about World War Two is that I think there's so much focus on the war, and then a little bit of how life is after that they almost forget that transition time, mm -hmm. yeah. and showing them, okay, the war has been gone for a while and everyone's forgotten almost about it, and it's the aftermath of it. I think is almost the to me it's more interesting because it's how humanity goes back to that level of being a human treating each other like humans yeah, that I would I have thought would have been interesting it's particularly fascinating for the French because uh, they wouldn't you know, even now I, I, I'm told they won't speak about war because no. of collaboration and yeah. You know, the very, very strange position they were put in with the German occupation. Um, yeah. And I think also people didn't want to know. Like all of the prisoners returned from from these prison camps emaciated and unable to stomach a, a meal. You know, there's a story about how Christian and Dior saved up all his rations to... Uh, have a souffle made for Catherine when she returned and she could not eat it because of the, you know, just the terrible conditions she'd suffered. Yeah. So um, 
but but the population didn't want to know about these stories. They wanted to move on. Yeah, and they wanted put to it put it in the rearview. Yeah. 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 I think I think the attitude's changing now, where mm. they do want to know, because it's it's you we're talking several generations later now, where there's that idea of well what happened to my relative or what happened there i need to know what happened so mm. that i could have understood their strange behavior when i was growing up with them or, or why yeah. they were a certain way um i had a lot of those questions from my grandfather because i was sick i got to see a lot of the different changes in him so i asked him a lot of stuff and I know I didn't get all the real stories, but it was enlightening to me to see that he had almost rewritten the stories yes. to make them more palatable. And I yes. thought, to me, that was really interesting because he went through a lot and he did a lot of things that nobody knew about. And mm. I would have loved to have actually been able to have captured that so he his sacrifices and stuff wouldn't have been forgotten but he wanted to just disappear into the the wallpaper almost um because to attract attention in those days was not good um not good at all so i can understand why they might not want to speak about it but i do know that that people are changing um generations are changing they do want to know now because they don't want it to happen again Yeah, you know, exactly. and it's that it's that thing where you know there's a lot of fascism is on the rise as well, and we have to just sort of be a bit more aware uh, of different things. Is there a series you are dying to write? Uh, if I'm dying to write something, I probably will write it. So uh, I wouldn't say that, but I have had in the back of my mind. Uh, a crime series. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I've never written straight crime, so I'm I'm not sure if I can do it. And so it might be a little side project while I. I, I think do with other the things. way that you research and the way that you work, as is, I think you would. I would recommend finding a retired detective or a retired police officer that you can personally interview and investigate and research and s sort of run your ideas by him yeah, and say yeah, well I, I would hmm. want to do this or can you read this scene and make sure it's 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 a bit more realistic yeah you know i've got a good friend who's a police detective so that shouldn't be go. too hard <laughs> no there you go and yeah. and it's it's if you have the right support in place you can do anything um just it's about taking the running jump i say you know, it's about not being scared to dive off the diving board as high as you can and yeah. seeing where you land you know at least that's my theory <laughs> so is there any techniques that you found helpful and they're the ones that you wish that you hadn't tried i, I beg your pardon sorry i just didn't catch the is there any writing techniques you found helpful and are there ones you wish you hadn't tried? Uh, techniques. I do not plot. 
So, um, oh, okay. my, yeah, I, I don't plot in detail. So I, right. I do have to write a synopsis for, to actually sell a book, but I yeah, try to yeah. forget it. And then, uh, so the thing I regret doing was plotting a book, every single scene. <laughs> okay, I, I'm not mind. that bad, but yeah, I get where you're going with it. Um, but, but with the historical fiction, I have started to plot a little bit more because just because I need to get uh, all of the historical events right in the timeline. Yeah. And so I use a software program called Scrivener, which you probably know about, uh, yep. which allows you to you have a little sidebar with all the scene names in it and it's very easy to move things around and and uh got, it's got a lot of great features so i love that that's something that i did try and it was a bit of a learning curve but once i got the hang of it, it I, i'm sure it's got many features that i don't use but uh that yeah, yeah. that's been a good one for me um i think it's to, yeah sorry i was going to say that i think the uk alternative to that is final draft a lot of people use final draft because you can do a lot of the, the storyboarding in there. You can really mm. sort of put it in there. And then you can almost like have the story here, but have the sort of the storyboard on one side and the writing on the other side. And then if you need it to drop down so you can just focus on the writing, you can. So it allows you to move everything around within the application. But yeah. it also can help like... If you've got a say you've got a collaborator or a co-author a lot of people find that helpful mm -hmm. because they can log in and write at the same time as you oh yes yes so uh, yeah it's, it's handy it's, disconcerting <laughs> it was a bit the first time i did it i was like the hell's going on here and then i was like oh it's my co-author right <laughs> i thought i was being hacked or something you know it's like uh. <laughs> yeah. I I was almost at the point of shouting Ian to say, "Oh my God, a big cat!" But I yeah, wasn't. I saw the Duffer Brothers. Uh, I was watching a masterclass of theirs. You know, they did Stranger Things, and uh, they yeah, they yeah. work that way. They just both of them work on the same document, and being yeah. twins, I'm sure they're they're just right in sync with that. But that would probably drive me nuts to do do that. I'm, maybe I'm a bit con control freak. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, the way that we did it as co-authors was um, Joe and me would spend two, three days just arguing back and forth about the outline. <laughs> and we would have an outline. And then from the outline, I would build a synopsis. And then he would tell me what he would want cut out or what he wanted added or whatever. And then I would use that to break down the chapters. Mm -hmm. So I would know, okay, this is what's happening in this chapter. And I would... I would only know the chapters, so I wouldn't know scene by scene what it was, but I would have key notes that I had to hit, and that's how we did it. Um, I did the lion's share of the writing, and then he would come in and he would tweak scenes like, oh, you can't have that, wrestlers don't do that, or, mm. you kidding me, if somebody did that to a wrestler, this is what they would do in response, you know, um, so he kind of kept me in the right zone for a lot of the ethical side of things right. um and the physical side of things which was good and right. i really appreciated that sort of detail orientation he had um 
But yeah, it's I find it interesting that a lot of co-authors have many different forms of writing now compared to what, you know. Because yeah. in the old days, you'd have to be in the same room as each other if you wanted to co-author uh, something, or you would have to be meeting up somewhere to do it. And I, I yeah, so I'm kind of grateful for technology in that regard, because me, yeah, well, me and Joe would never have written Marie's World or any of the Marie's World series, because it would have been impossible for us to do. Um mm. So, yeah, I was grateful for that. And he got used to me kind of texting him at random times in the night going, Oh, got an idea! (laughs) (laughs) Which, um, you know, if you work with me, you know that I I have the ability to do sometimes. So going into the life portion of the podcast, what's the first thing you do when you want to de-stress from editing and writing? Uh, I watch K-dramas, Korean dramas. So Okay. uh, well, it was a habit I developed in COVID when I was feeling yeah. quite stressed about many things. Uh, I think I we all were, yeah. As well, yeah. So, uh, yeah, just something that completely took my mind off everything else was these romantic comedies, and I, I just love them. Uh, but, uh, you yeah. know, yeah. something that's good to do is go for a walk or get in the garden and pull weeds or something like that too to de-stress, I think going outside that's a really good one yeah Yeah. what hobbies do you enjoy and are there ones you wish you could explore oh look you know i feel like there's no time for hobbies really i like cooking i I bake a bit too much for my waistline and um (laughs) i I don't uh, bake enough for my waistline (laughs) i wish i was like that uh, I do like to draw and I think what I would love to do one day but I still haven't got around to it is learn to paint uh, oh, because wow. yeah. in my family it was always, oh, we're not artistic, we're not creative and when I actually put my mind to things I can sometimes do them. So, But I, I think there is that barrier there that I haven't got there yet because I'm worried I won't be very good. <laughs> It's a, it's all about taking that leap of faith, isn't it, really? Too? Yeah, and having yeah. the time to, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I think you need a lot of patience, which I don't have an awful lot of, to be honest. So, I myself have an illness that makes me slow down and appreciate the day. What makes you slow down and smell the roses? I think being with my friends and family, I really do try to live in the moment and and uh, pay attention to what they're saying and not be off with the fairies with my my stories so yeah when when the kids are on holidays and things like that like you know depending on my deadlines I, uh, I do try yeah at least it used to be I would work from 4 a.m till 11 a.m something like that and then the afternoon yeah. was theirs so, yeah. and going for a swim and just getting outdoors with them, that's really... Um, yeah, important things, yeah. <laughs> What's your, or where's your favourite place to curl up during the day? Do you like going into your garden? Do you have a reader's note? Where do you like to just go and read? Well, living in Queensland, we love our verandas. So I've got a nice big veranda and I often go out there and sit and just pretend I'm out in nature and 
um, which, well, I am, but I'm in suburbia, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. It counts, it counts. Yeah, enjoy the fresh air and, and uh, yeah, I love sitting out there and reading a paper book. <laughs> Feels like luxury. It does, it does a bit. So we are on the last part of the podcast, which is the funnest bit, where we're going to do a speed round of the first book that comes to your mind. And when I looked you up, I had to try and imagine where we might meet. And I thought of a clandestine mission in an old man's club in England, in London, somewhere. So your first word is stones. Stones. Oh, The Dry by Jane Harper. Yep. It's very rocky and stony. Yep. Beach. Uh... Big Little Lies, Leon Moriarty. Okay. Uh, Groomsman. I'll have to say a friend's book, The Paris Wedding by Charlotte Nash. She's an Australian writer. Cool. How about gown? Like gowns, women's gowns. Uh, uh, Dior and I by Christian Dior. That's a fabulous memoir of his first collection and I, I really love that book okay interesting uh crowns Macbeth <laughs> <laughs> okay um necklaces oh uh Cartier the story of the Cartiers uh, I've just read that because I'm writing about a woman who designs jewellery now, so, yes. Okay, uh, Servants. Uh, much Obliged Dudes by P.G. Woodhouse. <laughs> okay. Which I have not read for many years, but it's on my bookshelf. It counts, it counts. <laughs> uh, fires? Fires. Um, there's a book called Northern Heat by Elaine Young about the bushfires in Australia. Yeah, yeah, you guys had it bad a wee while ago. Fireplaces? Oh, The Talisman Ring by Georgette Hare. Yeah. There's a tricky fireplace in that, in that book. <laughs> Last but not least, Stone Floors. Oh, Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. <laughs> I knew that one was coming for some reason. I just had that. Yeah, I had that feeling. I just. Well, it has been an honor to have you on, and you will have to come back in autumn so we can oh, talk about your new book. Thank you. And so the great much. thing is, we will dive. I will have a whole list of questions for the book, just like Lovely. discussing the whole world and everything. Now that the listeners have met you and gotten to know you you don't have to go through the ridiculous questions all over again and uh, it'll be a bit more fun so yes you we are excited to have you back and uh, guys you're going to want to stay stay with me for next week as we have a fantastic u.s author who is going to be making an appearance on the show <laughs>